0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, it's good to see you, my friends. I invite you this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter three. We continue our series on what it means to become and to look more like Jesus. Uh, Some of you know, I actually have a degree in philosophy, which means I've read a few things. And my mind was kind of drawn back to something that I read some years ago from Aristotle. What he believed is that there was an end. He used the word telos for who we are. And by end, I don't mean the end of it, is that what he really believed is that we were created. We had, uh, there's a goal, there's a function for us. We're striving toward it. There's a purpose for us. So just like an acorn is destined to become an oak tree, it becomes something greater than it already is. And what he said for humans, he said the the goal for us is what he called eudaimonia. I'm not expecting you to remember that word, but here's the big idea. The best condition possible for humans is happiness through leading a meaningful and a virtuous life. We're becoming something that we are not. And part of the process involves relationships that we have and the habits that we form. For him, what he believed is, is that the greatest instruction that we can give for our children is literally walking life with them, not just telling them the right thing to do. It's literally the walking of life with them that they will kind of catch onto it and the habits that we form. So why he goes on to say, we are what we repeatedly do. It's what we do. Excellence then is not just an act, but it is a habit. In this study on like Jesus, we've been talking about cultivating what we might call divine habits or spiritual habits. Those things that, that we, we have a routine, we're routine in the good sense of the word routine. We have this routine that's a part of our life and knowing that as we put into the routine, it actually changes us. Scripture proclaims that Christ is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. In other words, if you had seen Jesus, then you have seen exactly what God is like. And as I was thinking about that verse in Colossians 1.15, I would love for it to be said, it never will because I'll never get there, but that when people see me, they see something of what God is like. That, that should be a goal of mine. And it goes on to say in Hebrews 1.3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature. You can literally see the nature and the character of God by looking at Jesus. The problem is, is that when it comes to us, we don't have enough willpower to pull that off. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just not in us naturally. It's just not there. And in describing whether it's possible for us to live like Jesus, there's a scholar and a, the, a pastor named John Stott some years ago, he gave this example. He said, it's no good for me to, it's no good, uh, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and then telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it, I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I can live a life like his. To do this, you need the spirit, in other words. I was thinking about it this way. I, I play guitar, not as much as I used to. But imagine, imagine you hearing somebody playing the song, House of the Rising Sun. Y'all know the song that I'm talking about? That's like a classic, right? And you're sitting there, it starts in A minor. And so you start in A minor and you're just kind of strumming your chords through it, right, now. and even, and the people around you are singing it and whatnot, and you finish it. And by the way, it's not a terribly difficult song to play. So there's that. So I'm throwing that part out free of charge. So you play House of the Rising Sun, and the song wraps up and I'm the guy sitting there and I go, that is amazing. Now I want you to play Malaguena. And you sit there and you go, I can't. (laughs) I can literally play House of the Rising Sun. And then I look at you and I go, no, but I just want you to play Malaguena. And you go, but I can't. You know what's not helping you in that moment is me just telling you to try harder. That is not helping you in that moment me telling you to do something that you can't, you're probably not finding particularly beneficial. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, specifically in verses 17 and 18. I invite you to read it with me. He says, now the the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Did you catch what he just said? The change in you comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me give you some backdrop for those verses because Paul's actually coming from somewhere and it's in Exodus chapter 34. There it says, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, meaning he had received the, the, the commandments from God, the, te- the tablets of testimony in his hands, as he descends the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. The skin of his face. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community, they returned to him. Apparently it's like they saw him coming down radiating and they're like, we're going that way. And so he's like, no. And so they all start to come back to him and Moses speaks to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near and he commanded them to do everything the Lord that had told him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And after he came out, he would tell the Israelites what had been commanded. And the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Are you seeing a little bit of a trend here with Moses and the people of Israel? Moses goes up and he has regular encounters with the glory of God. God's presence, which was manifest in a number of ways. Sometimes you'd see it in a pillar of clouds. You would see it in a pillar of fire. With Moses, he's having a direct encounter with the presence of God. This is all a precursor to the way the Holy Spirit is going to work in us It's all a precursor to that. And so, with Moses, with every encounter, he is changed to the point that he literally looks different. That's what's happening to him. Now, I have this question as I was reading this in Exodus chapter 34 Who has access to the presence of God in this story? And the answer is Moses. Moses does. He is the one that's directly interacting with God. And God is revealing things to him. And notice he reveals, for example, the tablets. He brings the tablets of testimony, law, and that's good. He reveals that to him, and then he brings it down to the people. But they see something has happened to him. With that in mind, think about where Paul goes in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 12 and 13. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Well, what was it that was passing away? And the answer is God had given Moses the law and the law is good. It's there to instruct. The law does not save you. The law exposes your need to be saved. So there was a time of a revelation of a law and notice what it says, there's a time where God is going to do something new and the old time has passed away. That's what he's talking about. But even with Moses, think about this, after a while, did you notice, the glory of God would start to fade away from even him. And he would put a veil over his face, not to cover up the radiance of the glory of God, he put the veil over his face when the glory of God started to go away. He covers his face and then he goes before God and he pulls the veil aside and he looks him straight in the face and he radiates the glory of God. And then he goes to the people again and what happens? It's like Pete and repeat. And when the glory starts to fade from him, whoo, he puts a veil over his face. And so Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 14. He says, their minds were made dull, For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It's like you haven't caught on to what God was doing. You haven't caught on to it. It hasn't been removed because only Christ is what takes it away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers not their face, but their heart. It covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil... Is taken away. So when Moses would literally go into the presence of God, he would pull the veil off of his face so that he could see God. Now, the Lord is a spirit. Remember this? The Lord is who? The Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You are free. And we all who with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory because you're looking at it. You're looking at it and we're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Here's what this means. When the people are set into the spirit of the Lord, this is a person that you are having a relationship with. This is God's empowering presence in your life. You will be changed. You don't have enough willpower for this on your own. You need a source of power to abide in you. And the answer is, for those that have accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you every measure of power for this to happen in you. I like what he says in verse 18, when he says, and we all. You remember when I I read to you from Exodus 34, who was having the direct experience of God? Moses was. Here, Paul says, "And we all—not just Moses—we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory." Basically, what this is: we stare in a mirror. We look in a mirror. How many of you looked in a mirror lately? Well, a lie. I try to keep that to a minimum. <laughs> yeah, uh, get a little older, a little balder—all those things. You know, I'm not—I'm just not staring in a mirror a ton. But the reason he borrows this example is because one of the Corinthians main exports was bronze mirrors. It was one of the main things that they sold and they shipped out. So they knew what mirrors were. And he says, you stare into it so that you can see. You stare into it so that you can see. And as he goes on to say, and as we live in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. We get that kind of change. It is a complete overhaul of your person, literally from the inside out and into Jesus's image. And he says, with ever increasing glory. And what that means is it's a little bit every day. With ever increasing glory. You're changed into his image just a little bit more every single day. You look more like Jesus. And he says, and all this comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. In John 14, 17, it describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. Here's what this means for us, just practically speaking, is that we need to be in such a relationship with the Holy Spirit that in our time of prayer, when we're in solitude, we're not in a time of distraction, but in our time of prayer, is that we communicate with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would speak truth to us. So here you have two different images, Paul saying, you look into a mirror, why? So that you can see yourself the way that you really are. And then second, you speak to the Holy Spirit, why? So that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you who you really are. And then the assumption there is, is that when the Holy Spirit speaks, when you look into the mirror, you can see, and then you say, please help me to change because he's going to reveal, he's going to show you something. But he goes on to say in John 14, 17, he says, the the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. He's with you, he's with you. So how how does this change happen that we're talking about? I mean, what do I really need to do so that I can look more like Jesus. There are two main ways this actually happens. There really are. One is that you have this transformative experience such that when you have it, you never forget it. You never forget it. I was thinking of some examples. Blaise Pascal had an experience just like that. Blaise Pascal was an absolute genius. It was described of him that when he was a little boy, uh, his mother had passed away when he was very, very young. And that when he was a little boy, his dad, Etienne would go to work and then he would kind of come back home and he would find Blaise out in the backyard, roughly 10 years old with a stick. And he's like drawing in the dirt out there. And Etienne comes over and he's like, what are you doing? And the answer was, he was figuring out the principles of Euclidean geometry on his own in the dirt. Blaise Pascal, I'm just throwing this out there, was smarter than your average bear. Is that fair? Uh, It was also said, for those of you that have ever heard of what is called conic theory. So so think like an ice cream cone, right? Three-dimensional cone. Um, He's the one that when he was in his early teens was figuring out how conic theory actually works. He was apparently so brilliant. His dad used to go and meet with all the scholars in France. And he was like, I'm gonna bring my boy in and he's gonna do a talk. And so here comes little blaze and he does this talk. And here's what everybody thought. Okay, your dad did that and you're the one that was just talking. But it wasn't, it was him. See, now Blaze, he was also known for a very worldly lifestyle. Until, until there was an experience that he had. And and all that we know of it is found from something that he wrote down. Uh, One person that has studied the life of Pascal said that he was such a man of science that even even as he was having a vision of God, he was literally writing down the things that he was seeing. And on this piece of paper, what he wrote down first was fire. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And that experience, which he said just endured like through the night, that experience was so powerful to him. It was so overwhelming to him that after he wrote it down inside of his jacket, he had put a little pocket there. He had folded it up and he had put it there so that it would be over his heart. So I'll never forget this. He so said, I'll never forget this. Most of the people around him did not know that he had even had that experience because that wasn't the thing that he even talked about that much. Here's what everybody around him knew. Something has changed in this guy. Something is different. And it was only after he had died, they find him and inside the jacket pocket, they pull out the piece of paper and they read the experience that he had. Some people have an experience like that that God just gets a hold of you and shakes you. It's like in Monsters, Inc. It's like, pick me up with his mind powers, and he shook me. Some of you have an experience like that. Did you know that the apostle Paul was the exact same way? A friend of mine described Paul as the Osama bin Laden of the ancient Near East. (laughs) You know, they go, well, I mean, that's pretty graphic, but when you think about what the guy was doing, it makes total sense. He hated Christians, hated them. He was one of the guys that was responsible for putting the hits out on Christians until, until he encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus until then. And then that man was never the same. The same fervor that he had in killing Christians became the fervor that he had for you to become a Christian. That guy, there was an experience that he had and he just couldn't shake it. That would be another one. Here's a third example I was thinking about, a friend of mine who had been a missionary in Baghdad for over 25 years. Even in the first Gulf conflict, you know, the bombs are just dropping. He's there in Baghdad. You can imagine what a difficult time that would be, living in that place. But as he was telling me some years later, he and I were uh, professors together. He was a professor of missions, really just a great guy. He said, "There there was this time. He said, just one experience. He said, there was this time. So my wife and I were at home. He said, it's one afternoon. He said, and lo and behold, there's a, he said, there's a knock knock at the door. He said, so I get up and I go to the door and I open the door up. And he said, and there stands a guy that I don't know. And I said, well, hi, how are you? Can I help you? And he says, I can't explain this. He said, but I, the entire night, I just kept having the same dream. And in the same dream, I kept being told to go to this street and to go to this house. And I'm just wanting to know why am I here today? Why am I here today? And my friend said, Come on in. <laughs> yeah. So he comes into the house, they sit down, they have tea, they have a conversation. And in that afternoon, he gives his life to Jesus in that living room in Baghdad. Now I want you to understand, he knew that when he was making the choice to follow Jesus, there were other things that were coming with it. His family was gonna be done with him, if not, if not also wanting to kill him. He knew that was coming. He just said, Jesus is worth it. Can you imagine having a dream like that all night where it's the same thing over and over and over again? I want you to go to this house. I want you to go to this door. Why am I here? It was so he could meet Jesus. That was why. Some of our, some of our stories of change look like that, where you have an encounter that is so powerful and so overwhelming, and that's good. Because in those stories, breakthroughs, those breakthroughs are about being freed from bondage. That's what it's about. But I'm gonna be honest with you. And this is the truth. These moments are not as common as the second way this change happens, which is the slow, consistent journey of faith that produces deep character in Jesus. That's the way it usually works. I like the way John Mark Comer describes it. He said, it's not in a moment. It's in a thousand small, ordinary moments of prayer and confession and service and being a part of a Christian community and reading scripture. It's in a thousand moments and it changes you. I want you to remember the adage, without God, we can't. We need him. But without us, he won't. Without God, we can't. And without us, he won't. He is looking for our response in faith. And then change can happen. Or the way that Dallas Willard said it, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. So you have this relationship with Jesus by grace. You didn't deserve any of it, people. Neither did I. But once you have it, there's work. There's work to be done so that more and more of the old self dies off. It's put to death. This is true, by the way, of any relationship that you've got in case you did not know it. Did you know that every relationship that you got is work? Am I the only one that has seen that? Think about your marriage. You've got the relationship, now it's work. How about raising children? You've got them, now it's work. How about your friendships? Have you ever noticed that it's great to have them? There's work involved there. There's cultivating the relationship. There's growing deep in the relationship. Wendy and I have been married going on 22 years this December. There are still things about her that I'm going, really? Really? I'm convinced that she feels the same way about me because I'm a complicated guy. Really? Same with every friendship that I've got. And it's same in my relationship with Jesus. The more that I stay in the more, the more I stay in the word, the more I have these moments where I'm like, whoa. Even after all of these years of knowing Jesus, there's that much more to know. It's that much more to know. And the change is born in a thousand small moments of prayer and confession and study. Grace as opposed to earning but it is an opposed to effort. I love this example. There's a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You. And in this process of becoming like Jesus, it's like sailing. I don't know how many of you sail or have sailed. Let me borrow an example from him. He said, sailors can't move without the wind. That's true. But it doesn't mean that they kick, kick up their feet on the deck and they wait for the wind to start moving. They're tying knots. They're adjusting the sails. They're turning the rudder. All the while making sure the boom doesn't swing across the deck and smack you in the head. Here's what he goes on to say. Sailing is hardly a passive enterprise. But it is still completely dependent on the wind. And that's what our relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. Who gives us the power to look like Jesus. That's what it's like. Our efforts with God's power moves us forward. Now, again, I'm not telling you, you earn your relationship with Jesus, you don't. We have that by grace, I wanna repeat that, but it's through divine habits, I'm trying to grow in my relationship with Jesus, and in that process, I become something new. That's when I become something new. So the disciplines or the divine habits, this is how we open ourselves up for God to do that work. That's how it happens. Let me give you two verses, and I'm gonna set these verses side by side so that you can see something that's really, really important. If you go in Galatians 5.16 and you look, it says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, again, if you pay very close attention to Paul, he does not say you will not have the desires of the flesh. You will. You will the way that you know that you are walking by the power of the Holy Spirit is you won't gratify it. You don't give in to it. Walk by the Spirit. And and literally the verb there means that you continue moment by moment to walk in the Spirit. And what that means is you're making choices in moments. Now look at Galatians 5.22, just a few verses later. Very famous verse in verses 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit love and joy and peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see those two verses? If you were to look at these two verses, there's only one command in all of them. Walk in the Spirit. One command. Walk in the Spirit. The spirit, And here's what this means is that when you walk in the spirit, what you find in Galatians 5, and 23, they flow out of you because the Holy Spirit has arrested you, has captivated you, has empowered you, has changed you. And this just flows out of you as a result. Walk in the spirit. So I was thinking about this, especially for this morning, during the course of this week i just say i'm thankful for jesus he's very very patient with me <laughs> he's very very patient with me but i was also thinking about these words of the presbyterian minister henry van dyke he said for love is but the heart's immortal thirst to be completely known and all forgiven that is your heart is to be completely known and to be all forgiven Now, if you think that God does not know everything about you, then you have fooled yourself. That part of the equation is taken care of. You are completely known. And if you don't believe that, it's because you're fooling yourself. You are completely known. But the second part of the heart's desire is to be all-forgiven. And this is where God is utterly unlike anyone that you've ever encountered because that's exactly what he wants for you. All forgiven, all good, all taken care of. Now let's move on in this relationship. All of the promises about the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about this morning are given to those who have given themselves to Jesus first. Because if you look at the theme in the Gospel of John is that the Holy Spirit points you to Jesus and he points you to Jesus you need Jesus and if your first reaction is to deny what the Holy Spirit is pointing you to which is Jesus then you've denied the Holy Spirit too the Holy Spirit points you to him when you receive him you receive what the Holy Spirit is pointing you to And then the Holy Spirit comes into you and dwells you, as scripture says, and empowers you for godliness and holiness. That's the way that it works. All the promises of the Holy Spirit are to those who have given their life to Jesus. I love the way that John Stott talks about this when he was talking about Jesus and the cross. He said, the the, the concept of a substitution may be said then, meaning Jesus on the cross, it may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and he puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That, my friend, is what scripture calls the gospel. That's what it calls the good news. Our part in it wasn't the work that was done on the cross. We're the one that made the cross necessary. Our part is how we respond to the grace that is demonstrated in the cross. And that's just a gift. I'm encouraging you this morning to open it. To open it. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.